Today on Peace Talks Radio, conversation about the economics of peace with the folks who created the Global Peace Index. We've done work which has analyzed the global economy, and what we've found from that is that $8 trillion were lost through violence. It's very, very hard to imagine a world which is actually 100% peaceful, but I think we could all imagine a world which is, let's say, 25% more peaceful, and that would equate to $2 trillion. Plus, we'll hear about Afghani women who literally took the effort of creating a peace industry into their own hands. From author Gail Samak Laman. And I think oftentimes, you know, women entrepreneurs are really overlooked because they're not um, really in the mainstream of, of media or networks um, and in the question of who's at the table. And really what I wanted to show with this work is that they certainly exist and they really are allies in building more stable communities. All today on Peace Talks Radio the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. January 17, 1961, just days before John F. Kennedy was to be sworn in as the 35th President of the United States, outgoing 34th U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, former World War II commander, delivered a farewell address from the Oval Office of the White House. In the address, he both acknowledged the need for expanding military resources to then fight off the spread of communism, but also, now famously, he warned of the developing power of the military-industrial complex. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. When President Eisenhower warned of the power of the military-industrial complex in January of 1961, he probably wouldn't have guessed that the 2012 budget request for defense-related expenditures would be $1 trillion. While conventional wisdom asserts that war and military spending are good for the economy, now that many more millions are dependent on the defense industry for jobs and related income, 
A 2007 report by the Center for Economic and Policy Research showed that military spending diverts resources from productive uses, such as consumption and investment, and ultimately slows economic growth and reduces employment. Other nonpartisan studies have shown that overall value and employment is more cost-beneficial to the country if money is poured into a highway system, or affordable housing, or bridge repair. It's a point that a minority in Congress try to present each time an expanding defense spending authorization bill comes to the floor. California Representative Barbara Lee made the case in 2011. The big issue, I think, for many of us is how do we get there and what do we do and how do we ensure that we have a budget that reflects, yes, our national security priorities, but also a budget that uh, protects uh, the most vulnerable in our country and a budget that ensures that we have priorities to create jobs and, and to turn this economy around. And so what this amendment basically does is just say that uh, if we're going to do this, we need to engage in a debate that, that is honest, and we need to put everything on the table, and that includes the Pentagon. And, and in fact, we need to begin to look at how we cut back to 2008 levels. Lee wound up withdrawing her amendment that asked for a return to defense spending levels of 2008 because of certain lack of adequate support in Congress. Now why? Well, a report from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute likened the possibility of reducing the military budget to turning around the proverbial supertanker, since weapon systems have long lead times and are hard to cancel. And with most states in the Union having a significant number of jobs dependent on the defense, Congress people might be afraid of being labeled anti-jobs or unpatriotic for voting against defense spending. For some, it's hard to imagine a transition to what might be called a peace economy. But for others, imagining a more peaceful world and an economic approach that supports that peaceful world is their work. And we'll be talking with some of those folks today on Peace Talks Radio. Later, Gail Simak Lamont, the New York Times best-selling author of The Dressmaker of Karkana, the true story of breadwinners in burqas, five Afghani sisters who became successful entrepreneurs during the Taliban years in Afghanistan. But first, though, Suzanne Kreider visits with both Steve Kilalea and Clyde McConaughey of the Australian-based Institute for Economics and Peace, which has, since 2007, published an annual Global Peace Index, ranking nations and, for the first time in 2011, U.S. states in peacefulness. Suzanne talked with both McConaughey and Kilalea during separate trips, each made in 2011 to Washington, D.C., First, Clyde McConaughey. Clyde, what is the Institute for Economics and Peace? The Institute is, is dedicated around defining peace, measuring peace, and determining what the economic benefits of nonviolence are. How do you define peace? We define peace as the absence of violence. So there are lots of different definitions, but we wanted something that was clear, simple, and also able to be measured. What kind of measurements do you use? We use measurements within a country and outside a country. So measures within a country would be the homicide rate, incarceration rates, and the level of anticipated violent demonstrations. External measures include military spending, uh, troop deaths from deployments overseas, and relationships with neighbouring countries. We're recording this show in 2011, and you've just released the results. So what did the results say about these 144 countries? 
153 countries that we actually cover off this year. Uh, generally speaking, the world has become marginally less peaceful uh, in the in the last 12 months. Um, certainly, there is the activities that have happened in um, the Middle East and North Africa in the last few months certainly influenced uh, the results because they go up to about the middle of March. And so, there are countries such as Bahrain and Egypt and Libya that have fallen well down the index. But there are also those that have had difficulties in the past, such as. Um, such as Sri Lanka and Thailand and Georgia, which two years ago were in, uh, having uh, internal conflicts that are now uh, the most improved countries in the Global Peace Index. Americans love to know who the winners and losers are. Who were the winners? Well, the, the winner, so to speak, is Iceland, and Iceland uh, re-achieved number one position. It fell two years ago as a result of the global financial crisis when there were violent demonstrations, and it fell from first to fourth, which actually on the GPI is quite a significant fall. Nonetheless, it, it bounced back. It showed a lot of resilience. It put in, changed its government. It resettled its, uh, uh, its society, and it goes back to number one. New Zealand is second, and Japan is third. What do the countries say in the top ten have in common? Really, they are characterised by high levels of education, low levels of internal conflict, low homicide rates, low incarceration rates. Um, they generally are, have good relationships with their neighbours. They generally don't have troops deployed in other countries um, and their deaths from internal conflict, so frustrations within their own society, tend to be low. They also tend to be relatively small countries. Isn't that true that Iceland only has, what, 230,000 people? So it would be easier to be a peaceful country, wouldn't it? Well, not necessarily. Japan's got 120 million people, um, has uh, very difficult relationships with its immediate neighbours, has a very sophisticated economy, not this, not, not, not unlike the size of the US, I mean not quite there, but the third biggest economy in the world. So it is possible to be very peaceful and a substantial, in that case, G7 nation of the world. Um, nonetheless, there's also Canada is, uh, is in the top ten as well. It doesn't have as big a population anywhere near the US, for example, but geographically it's the second biggest country in the world. So geographic size and population um, are not necessarily tied to the fact that you might be more or less peaceful. Tell us about the countries who scored at the bottom of the list. Well, at the bottom of the list this year for the first time is Somalia. Um, previously, uh, Iraq has been at the bottom of the last four and, and uh, indeed the first four iterations of the Global Peace Index. Uh, Iraq's position actually improved slightly in the, last, uh, in the last 12 months and in fact Somalia's has worsened somewhat. So the characteristics of those countries is they have, as one might expect on a Global Peace Index, high levels of internal violence. We make no particular judgment as to whether or not why they're there in the position that they are, but they do have high levels of um, battlefield deaths and also civilian deaths. Um, homicide rates may be, may be high, but it's usually related to military activity. And so those countries have to um, try and focus on um, aspects which actually might be able to take them out of the bottom 10 of the Global Peace Index. The actual index is a score, right? So tell us about the score, because it's not that we couldn't get all the countries to a really good score. What's the range from, say, Iceland to Somalia in scores? Okay, in scores, the, the scores range from one to five. So if it was a the perfect state it would have a one. In fact, it actually could have a ranking of a half because we measure in halves, so it's possible to be 0.5. Nobody's ever achieved that or achieved less than one. Uh, at the other end of the scale, it goes up to five. The important thing to understand is that places like Iceland and New Zealand and Japan and Canada have rankings at around 1.2. And 1.2 means uh, that of the 23 indicators, they've got very close to one 23 times. 
Um, on the other end of the scale, the most violent nations of the world have scores around 3.2, 3.3 and 3.4. Now that tells you two things. Firstly, that on the 23 indicators, they have many indicators that are around 3 and 4 and indeed 5 in order to get an average that's, that's over 3. However, I'd also point out, and it's worth bearing in mind, that there is no country that gets a four or has ever got a four on the GPI. There's no country that's even near a five. So whilst we are moving to a greater level of peacefulness for countries at the top, things could be considerably worse if, uh, um, if, if the world were to go that way. Well, let's talk about the United States because the U.S. score moved, it improved from 85 to 82. Is that correct? Yes. What caused the improvement? Okay, there was ma- the main uh, improvement was um, reducing likelihood of violent demonstrations and indeed an improved homicide rate. So the U.S. has actually, relatively speaking, done well. It, as you say, it moved from 85th to 82nd, which is a three-rank improvement. Its score, interestingly enough, stayed exactly the same as last year. But if you go back three or four years when we first did the Global Peace Index, the U.S. was ranked 96th out of 120. Now it's ranked 82nd out of 150. So it's gone from, let's call it the bottom quarter, to pretty much in the middle. So that is probably better than any other large uh, economy of the world. What are the main factors that prevent the United States from being even in the top 20? Well, to be in the top 20, there are some factors that the U.S. have which really do drag it down. And I should point out that each of those 23 indicators that I was uh, referring to before have different weights. They're worth more. Some are worth more than others. You know, they, they take you down. Um, so where does the U.S. score poorly and where might it improve? Um, it's As I say, its jailed population is very, very high. It's the highest in the world, not just in per capita terms relevant to its size of population, but in absolute terms it is the highest in the world. So that actually drags it down. Um, its homicide rate has actually improved over the last decade, but nonetheless remains very, very high, probably two or three times that of any other uh, country in the world. And those sorts of factors are internal factors which tend to drag it down. Externally, it has clearly very high military spending. It's about half the world's spending on military is through the United States. But as importantly, it, it because it deploys its troops around the world, and we make no judgment on whether it should or shouldn't be doing that, and it plays a role that other countries benefit from, there's no doubt about that. But nonetheless, it does actually suffer from battlefield deaths as a result of those deployments, um, regardless of the reasons that it happens to be there. So battlefield deaths, clearly, on a global peace index, is going to pull a country down. So to get to 20 it would need to have some pretty big changes in policy for it to get into, the say, the top 20 or even top sort of 25% of the Global Peace Index. I'm looking at a map here that's really cool. It shows the 2011 results, and it's all color-coded. The very high countries are blue, and medium is um, yellow. So the United States, it's kind of glaring because we're looking at... Is this on your website, by the way? Yes, yes it is on the website, and it is a map that we are... Um, pleased about because we can show it to seven-year-olds or 70-year-olds or 17-year-olds and everybody understands it. So it is indeed on the website. It's really glaring because the United States is yellow, which is medium, right next door to Canada, which is blue. What could the United States learn from Canada? 
I'm not sure that I could say what the United States could learn from Canada, but what I would point out is the differences as to how they achieve their rankings on the GPI, because I could probably point out Mexico uh, as part of the same continent, which is actually orange and and well down the rankings from from the US. So what could the US do? Well, certainly, as I say, incarceration rates, uh, violent crime and homicides. So if the US were to be the same level of peacefulness as Canada, it would be about $360 billion a year better off. How does that manifest itself? We're talking about real numbers here. There's $90 billion that is related to the cost of violence. So that's actually um, not just the cost of actually someone being incarcerated and no longer being able to work and contribute to society, but also the cost of the judiciary and the system that supports it and uh, the cost of policing and all of those legal costs, all of those are up to about $90 billion a year. Then there's about another 135 um, billion dollars um, which accounts for other aspects of cost within society and then we apply what we call a multiplier which is sort of like a, a dollar flows around the system and if a dollar flows around the system it, 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 it pays for itself several times over. That total comes to $360 billion a year if the US were as peaceful as, Calen- uh, as Canada and that's only on the internal indicators, that's externing all military spending and all military activity from that measure. Um, if the U.S. were, if there were no violence, we estimate it would be $1.8 trillion per year better off. That's Clyde McConaughey, board member of the Institute for Economics and Peace. Steve Kilalea is founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace and the Global Peace Index. Steve, you've created enormously successful businesses. Why should business care about peace? Business needs to care about peace because I think in many ways it's a lost dimension of one of the things which uh, affect its markets. For example, we've done work which has analysed the global economy and what we've found from that is that if we look in last year, 2010, $8 trillion were lost through violence. Now, it's very, very hard to imagine a world which is actually 100% peaceful. But I think we could all imagine a world which is, let's say, 25% more peaceful. And that would equate to $2 trillion. Now, just to try and put that into some sort of perspective, that would be enough to pay off uh, Greece, Ireland, Portugal's debt. It would be enough to fund the carbon emissions, the 2020 carbon emissions, which the EU are after. It would also be enough to pay the Millennium Development Goals and also leave $1 trillion over for additional economic expansion. Now, if we look at that, and we then want to analyse that further and look what would the impact of that be on the US economy, it's approximately $1.4 trillion just for the US economy alone. Isn't there sort of an underlying belief that war is good for the economy, though? War is good for some sections of the economy in just the same way as crime. is also good for some sections of the economy. There are other parts of the economy which suffer substantial losses from war or from violence. Now, this is not to say that let's make a moral judgment that we don't need police or that we don't need an army. We certainly need a strong, robust army. But the question is, what is the size and what is it trying to accomplish? President Eisenhower talked about a military-industrial complex, that a lot of the economy was building up around the military What's your vision of a peace industrial economy? How could we develop that? Well, we came up with the concept of the peace industries. 
And we all know what the military-industrial complex is. We, a lot of people know the size of it and its relevance to the economy, even the major companies within it. But if I talk to you about peace industries, well, most people would start to think about uh, maybe some NGOs, maybe some Buddhist monks selling incense or something like that. But actually, peace industries are all those companies and businesses whose markets actually expand with increasing peacefulness and whose cost structures decrease. Now, we did a survey with the UN Global Compact, and they did a survey of their uh, chief executive officers and CFOs who were members, and they've got some thousands as members. And the survey sample, 80% believe the size of their markets increased with increased peacefulness, and 79% believe that their costs actually decreased as you increase peace. Why would the costs decrease? Well, it's a whole lot of inherent uh, uh, friction trapped in an economy uh, because of violence. So just, I'll give, just give you a couple of really classic examples. So one, we'll think about shopping. Now, if you're in the middle of a war zone, who wants to go out shopping? So if you actually decrease the violence, people are more likely to end up shopping, whereas in a highly peaceful neighbourhood, it'll be the way you might spend a leisurely afternoon. Similarly, security comes at a cost. You've got security grills, you've got security guards, and cameras, and all sorts of other things as well. Now, if we start to also look at management time, if management's got a lot of violence involved in the business in which they're operating, that's lost management time which goes towards trying to cope with day-to-day issues rather than trying to... Uh, yeah, compete better uh, against their opposition or alternately aim at trying to strategically grow their markets. Another example which is just really quite practical, look at New York today. You go into any meeting in New York and you lose five to ten minutes with the security guards downstairs. Now how many meetings actually happen in New York a day? Ten million? Multiply that by five to ten minutes and that's a substantial amount of money. Steve Kilalea, give us some examples of peace industries. What businesses would those be? Well, I think peace industries really is look at the computer industries. and You could say they also sort of supply violence containment industries as well, but the bulk of what they do is really goes into a, uh, uh, businesses which aren't related to violence containment, be insurance, uh, tourism would be a classic example, just to name some, banking. That's Steve Kilalea, founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace and the Global Peace Index. Suzanne Kreider also spoke with Clyde McConaughey, board member of the Institute. And we'll hear more from both gentlemen in a moment as we continue to explore the economics of peace today on Peace Talks Radio. More after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes, including this one, online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're talking with people who are trying to raise consciousness about how an economy that promotes and benefits from more peace can be imagined. Later in the show, we'll talk with the author of a book about five Afghani women who took matters literally into their own hands, starting a dressmaking business in their living room that offered work to 100 women in their Afghani neighborhood and helped offer peaceful stability to their conflict-ridden community. Author Gail Samak-Laman is just ahead. But right now, we continue with our conversation with Steve Kilalea and Clyde McConaughey, both with the Institute of Economics and Peace, headquartered in Australia. As described on its own website, the IEP is an international research institute dedicated to building a greater understanding of the interrelationships between business, peace, and economics, with a particular emphasis on the economic benefits of peace. Its founder, Steve Kilalea, launched the Global Peace Index in 2007 as a way to quantify the relative positions of nations and regions' peacefulness. They also used the same matrix to rank the peacefulness of each of the U.S. 50 states, In 2011, the top six most peaceful states were number one, Maine, then New Hampshire, Vermont, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Utah. The bottom six on the list were Texas, Alabama, Florida, Nevada, Tennessee, and Louisiana was last. Here again is Suzanne Kreider with first Steve Kilalea. Well, it's not just about business, though. It seems like from the Global Peace Index that there are also many sociocultural drivers of peace. Is that true? One of the things which is most fascinating about the research we've done around the Global Peace Index is try and describe the kind of environments which create peace. So if we look at the Global Peace Index, it's really a measure the absence of violence or fear of violence. Now what we do then is we look at do statistical analysis on other data sets, attitudinal surveys, indexes, to try and now work out what is actually statistically related with peace. From doing that, we've come up with eight different structures which create for a peaceful environment. But what's more fascinating is we look at look at these uh, yeah, structures and then we look at what else relates to peace. It's things like uh, yeah, environmental sustainability, per capita uh, uh, income increases for like on average for every 10 places a country moves up the global peace index per capita income increases by 3,000 US dollars per head you'll find that the societies have got better social cohesion and better social sustainability so as we look at these eight structures none of them are really counterintuitive so they're things like well-functioning government strong business environment equitable distribution of the resources of the government acceptance of the rights of others, low levels of corruption, uh, high rates of education. So as we look at these, they really describe an environment which is optimal for human potential to flourish. Here's the part I don't understand. So you've got these key structures. Uh, You've mentioned several of them. There's also the free flow of information, good relations with neighbors. It sure sounds like the United States and we didn't rank so highly. Uh, we're having this interview in 2011, and I believe the United States ranked 82nd. How do you explain that the United States isn't in the top 10, even though we have all these key structures? Uh, I think 
if you look deeply and you looked on a lot of the measurement scales as compared to other countries, the US doesn't rank as highly on a whole range of social development indicators as what it used to. So we'll just look at something like uh, equitable distribution of resources and we'll just focus on health. And I haven't got any particular views or biases about what the right health system is in the US, but there's certainly, if we look at the child mortality rate, uh, the US ranks very, very lowly. Uh, so that would just be one thing which the country really needs to relook at. But if we look at the measurements you know, to the US and why it ranks low on the Global Peace Index, it comes back to a number of different indicators. So it's got a high potential for terrorist acts. It's got a, uh, the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world, 2.3 million people. Uh, it's got more. It's got. Uh, it's involved in more conflicts than any other country in the world, and it's got a high-level battlefield deaths as well. So they're the major things which is really pulling the U.S. down. But if we look at now to a decade-long war on terror, uh, the, you would hardly argue that the U.S. economy has actually benefited from it. What needs to change in America? I know you don't want to take any kind of. Um policy stand, but I'm curious if you have any ideas of what kind of sacrifices the United States would have to make or what kind of cultural changes the country would have to go through. If we come back and we look at, let's say, the U.S. Peace Index and look at the uh, research we did there, uh, what we found is that if uh, the U.S. had the same levels of violence as Canada, the, the net economic impact would be $361 billion dollars. So just to put that in perspective, $272 billion of that would be additional economic activity, which would be enough to generate 2.7 million jobs or reduce unemployment by 20%. Now, as we look at that and we start to actually analyse it uh, further, we found that there were three factors which were really statistically significant with uh, crime in the US or violence in the US. The first one was economic opportunity, and you could see that as sort of being related to poverty in many ways, if you like. The second came down to education with particular emphasis on high school graduation rates. The third was health. They were the three things which correlated. But two of the things which correlated really quite highly were uh, the percentage of teenage pregnancies within a state and also the uh, percentage of single-parent uh, households. And it, there's a lot of uh, good work going on in the States. In fact, crime in the States is dropping. Uh, it has been dropping for some time. It plateaued from about 2000 to about 2007, but it's now started to increase again. And this is contrary to what a lot of people were expecting with the GFC. Uh, it may be related to a whole range of different issues. I think we've seen unemployment drop uh, uh, steadily over the last 20 years, although it has spiked again in the last couple of years. We've seen the age demographics move from a young population to an older population. Older people are less likely to commit crime. But also I think there's been a lot of better uh, policing as well in many, many areas. The best and simplest way for the US to be able to stimulate its economy through peace is to really look at the incarceration rates. Uh, studies from the uh, Centre for Disease Control uh, uh, estimate that 70% of people who go to jail have held a job for one year prior to going to jail. Now, you put someone in jail who's been working, that's one job which is lost to the economy. 
also the flow-on effects of the money they spend, which employs others, and then the state loses the taxes. But on top of that, it then costs $43,000 per annum to keep the person in jail. That's more than what you pay for most MBAs. I noticed that you're working to get this information about the Global Peace Index into business schools. What is your hope in getting this information out to young business owners? Well, I think what we're doing is we're just trying to educate uh, business on the role of peace and its impact uh, within its markets and on its bottom line. I think through doing that and having a more educated uh, business class, they'll work with government to try and improve the conditions in the markets they operate. I think peace in many ways is something we really don't understand. Now, I'll just tell you how the Global Peace Index came about. So I've got a private foundation. It's active in about 13 different countries. It would have been about seven years ago, I was wandering through the Congo, looking at some of the projects we had there, and I was just wondering, what were the opposite of all these war-torn places which I was going to? What were the most peaceful nations in the world were, and what could we learn about it? Did some searches on the internet, couldn't find anything, and then as a research further, there was nothing which ranked the nations of the world by their peacefulness. So, if a simple businessman like myself can be wandering through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, what do we know about peace? Do you realise today you could go into any major university in the world and you won't find a chair on peace economics? Yet, most businessmen believe that their markets increase with peace and their cost structures decrease. Similarly, you could go into any of the major literature departments of any of the major universities in the world and you won't find a course on the literature of peace. Yet most of your listeners at some stage of their life would have been profoundly moved by some work on peace. I believe you're changing that though. Isn't there going to be a new chair of economics and peace? We're in the process of working with Monash University in Australia to create the first chair in the world in peace economics. So they've currently got a search underway. It'll probably take about another three to six months to get finalised, but we're optimistic about finding the right candidate to create the first chair ever in peace economics. And Steve Kilalea, what are your dreams for the next 10 or 20 years for the Global Peace Index? Well, my aim for the Institute for Economics and Peace is to broaden the research, to be able to better understand the environments which describe peace and to further understand the economic value which is associated with improving peace. Clyde McConaughey, board member of the Institute. So Clyde, let's take this down to the individual level and think about the average listener for our program. What can they do? Are there any behavior changes they can make in terms of making the United States more peaceful? Keep your kids at school longer is number one because the level of enrollment in high school is one of the strongest correlating drivers, correlating sort of relationship drivers between peace and uh, uh, and society so it's not whether or not they go to tertiary institutions and university and college uh, it's actually how long kids stay at school that's probably number one number two that actually is a very very strong driver um, maybe not at sort of the domestic level of over with your neighbour but is uh, corruption in society which is not a big factor in the US but it is in many many other countries but that's actually a very very strong driver for a lack of peacefulness as well um, but the other thing is and your point is a good one that it is bringing it down to the local level 
level. It's getting on with literally your neighbour across the fence a little bit differently and actually starting at, uh, you could say peace begins at home. So if peace begins at home, within the home, um, then with your immediate neighbours, then with your sub- suburbs and then with your football teams and, and that sort of thing. So the degree of cohesion and at a global level we measure the relationships of neighbouring countries indeed at a local level we know that the relationships with neighbouring people and indeed other uh, multicultural groups within society um, does actually make for a more peaceful society. That's Clyde McConaughey, board member of the Institute of Economics and Peace which publishes the annual Global Peace Index. Suzanne Kreider also spoke with Steve Kilalea, founder of the Institute. Next on Peace Talks Radio, we bring in Gail Samak Laman, the New York Times best-selling author of The Dressmaker of Karkana, the true story of the breadwinners and burkas, five Afghani sisters who became successful entrepreneurs during the Taliban years. They started a dressmaking business in their living room that offered work to 100 women in the neighborhood. Gail Laman has reported for many outlets and is also the deputy director of the Women and Foreign Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Here again is Suzanne Kreider. You have studied and written about women entrepreneurs in a variety of conflict and post-conflict zones, including Afghanistan, Bosnia, Rwanda. What have you learned about their role in building peace? I've learned really that women matter. And, you know, they matter for a couple of reasons, particularly in conflict and post-conflict settings. You know, first of all, they're the population you have left after war. Um, Second of all, you know, a lot of times women are left as heads of household because of conflict, right? War leaves them in charge of families often for the first time. And the third reason I think they matter is because if you can get to women, you can get to children. Because when women have money coming into the household, they support both their boys and their girls to go to school. So it doesn't have to be an either or between boys and girls. So it's really about the next generation. And I think oftentimes, you know, women entrepreneurs are really overlooked um, and and not studied or paid attention to because they're not um, really in the mainstream of, of media or networks um, and in the question of who's at the table. And really what I wanted to show with this work is that they certainly exist and they really are allies in building more stable communities. And talk more about that. How can we help them be allies in building stable communities? I think there are a couple of questions. I think, first of all, on a governmental level, it's sort of putting pressure in some ways on elected officials to make sure that um, your government pays attention to women when it comes to peace building. Um, Because, you know, fewer than 10% of peace agreements have women actually involved or signing that. Think about that. You know, it's almost as if women face a penalty for not having picked up a gun. They don't get a say in the war, and then they don't get a say in the peace. Uh, and, right, and so I think women exist in really um, stabilizing roles. They're supporting families. They're starting businesses. Uh, and yet they're still often overlooked. So I think asking your government to pay attention to them. And then the second way is um, to look at ways that per people on the individual level can get involved, whether that's working with organizations that help um, build skills or whether that's um, organizations that work on the ground to um, help support financially uh, women and, and business women in particular in tough parts of the world. What are some specific ways that you'd like governments to pay attention to women in conflict zones? 
Well, I think that it's a question of just what governments can do. First of all, they can make sure that women exist when it comes to having discussions about peace, right? I mean, you know, when you look around, I covered uh, in July of 2010, the Kabul conference in Afghanistan. And quite literally, the day before the conference, the head of the UN agency there in Afghanistan said, you know, you're completely right to this group of women. Um, We totally overlooked your contributions, and we forgot about women when it came to thinking about speaking roles in the Kabul conference. I mean, think about this. Women have somehow managed to be both half the population and a special interest group, which is pretty mathematically challenging when you think about that. So I think it's making sure, first of all, that women are at the table. And then I think, uh, second of all, it's how do you get skills and resources to women who are supporting their families economically? And that can be in the form of training, Um, but training that is attached to markets, right? So it's not enough to just train women, but there has to be a customer at the end of that training. Um, And then it's also, you know, doing things like helping women get access to finance, access to markets, um, access to networks. And I think all of that can be done. We'll have more with author Gail Samak-Laman, who wrote The Dressmaker of Karkana, after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio. More in a minute. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We have over 100 episodes in our free archive that you can explore if you'll visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're talking about the economics of peace, how the development of certain industries tend to complement a peaceful society, and in some cases can help wean communities from dependence on defense and military industries and offer a different kind of strength. Right now, we're exploring that on a micro level with the story of five Afghani sisters who became successful entrepreneurs during the Taliban years in Afghanistan. They started a dressmaking business in their own living room that offered work to 100 women in their neighborhood. Gail Samak-Laman is Suzanne Kreider's guest. She wrote a book called The Dressmaker of Karkana about the enterprise. You describe a woman who created a successful business in Kabul under the Taliban. Paint a picture for our listeners. What was an average day in her life like? You know, I think the Taliban era was really tough for men and women. Uh, But for women in particular, life was very difficult. Even leaving the house was a risk because you just didn't know if you might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, That said, security overall tended to be better. So you had women who were left at home during the Taliban years and really had to figure out how to support the families that were counting on them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
And so you had these young women who really turned to business because every other avenue uh, for economic support of their families was closed. And it was really home-based business, living room businesses, the kind that people in the U.S. have uh, all over the place that really made the difference um, between survival and starvation for so many families during those years. Because I think one of the things people don't know about the Taliban years is just how bad the economy was. You know, I've interviewed people who were talking about selling baby dolls and shoelaces and doors and windows, anything at all that had economic value. And so when a young woman like this could start a business in their home, they started a dressmaking business that um, created, you know, dresses for women around their neighborhood and jobs for girls around their neighborhood. Uh, It really did create a lifeline for families all around their community. What kind of dangers were they exposed to? The the thing about the Taliban years is you just didn't know because if you were indoors, you could largely be left alone. But if you were out of doors and in the marketplace, um, you know, you didn't know if a new guy was going to be patrolling. Uh, The Taliban had these vice and virtue soldiers who would drive around in black Toyota Hilux pickup trucks looking for rule breakers. And sometimes they were even more zealous about enforcing the Taliban's rules than, than any of the, the rulers in, in Kandahar were, any of the guys running the Taliban ever were. These were the zealous foot soldiers, the, the believers. And so, you know, they would drive around looking for rule breakers. And you just didn't know if when they found you, when they were toting a wooden baton or um, a TV antenna or sometimes an AK-47, what would happen? You could be beaten in the street. And there's an early scene in the book where it Uh, Kamala, the protagonist's sister, sees a woman beaten in the street. Um, Or you could be, you know, detained or you could be taken to jail, which was really the worst thing that could happen because um, no one knew what happened from there. I can't imagine living under that kind of stress, much less running a business. You know, I I run a business in Washington, D.C., and it's it's really safe. I have access to all the resources I need. So, how do these women do it? What are the qualities that they call upon to be able to be women op- entrepreneurs under violence? Well, it's it's such an interesting question. Um, you know, as I've been talking to to people around the country about the book and about the story of of this particular young woman whose story stands for so many others, right? Because there were so many young women who were breadwinners during years in which they could not even legally be on the streets. If you think about that, I think the answer to your question has to be resilience and determination because it's what women do uh, really every day all around the world with almost no one paying attention, which is their families need them. And so they step up and they find a way to provide for their children. And, you know, almost no one ever gives them credit for all this work that they do. And yet that they do the work that keeps families going so that when wars end, there's a place to go back to. And really, that's what motivates me to to write about so much of this is that, you know, there are all these, you know, inspiring entrepreneurs who are finding ways around all the obstacles before them simply because they have to and because people are in need of and counting on them to provide. And, you know, they deserve attention and they deserve resources. Gail, talk about the impact that making money has on these women and their families. Yes, it's, it's a funny you ask because in in the, one of the early um, 
scenes of the of the dressmaker in the introduction. Actually, I talk about meeting Kamala for the first time, and um, I met this young woman in Afghanistan in December of two thousand five, and she was telling me about this new business she was starting. And when I asked her how she, um, you know, had gotten started in entrepreneurship, she told me that was actually her third business, and she was barely even 30 at the time. And so when I asked her how she had become an entrepreneur, she said as if it were totally natural that it was actually the Taliban years that had showed her the power of business because when nothing else was possible, she had turned to business and realized she was kind of a lousy seamstress in terms of her dressmaking business, but she was a great businesswoman. And that's how she got started. And when I was asking her about why she thought entrepreneurship mattered, um, she really told me something that has stayed with me ever since, which is that earning money earns respect, especially in tough parts of the world. Because when a woman has money coming in, it really changes the dynamic of the family, the whole family. And women get more decision-making power, and they certainly get more um, say in what happens within their own family. And that is a game-changer. So these women really are not just changing their family's lives, but they're changing the whole um, dynamic and also the role models that they become for both young men and young women in their family. I wonder, too, though, if that's a little bit scary, because I remember I was in India visiting a group of women who had developed a microcredit business, and all the men were hiding in the bushes watching the women's class. So what does that do to the relationship between men and women, and how do men in Afghanistan react? Well, I think it is critical that men be involved from the very beginning, because we're talking about strengthening families, not just strengthening women. And I think when you spend time with women on the ground in in traditional parts of uh, the world, and particularly in places like Afghanistan, or and I'm sure where you were in India, I would imagine, um, you know, people don't see entrepreneurship as, you know, making them the next Donald Trump. Women see entrepreneurship as a way for them to really provide for and contribute to their families. And so I think men have to be involved. um, And so that they see this as a as a win for the entire family, not just for women. Um, You know, I think the Taliban years were a little bit different because there weren't a lot of men around in in this case. Um, But you know, as you see throughout the dressmaker, you know, Kamala's brother was um, absolutely integral to making this business happen because he was her mahram or male chaperone. Every time she was at the market, he was with her. He ran errands for them. They couldn't have done this without it. And I mean, think about that being a teenage boy with a house full of women counting on you to be their eyes and ears. Um, And so, you know, I think men really need to be part of it from the very beginning. And what does earning money, which earns respect, have to do with making peace? I think earning money, earning respect, having enough income so that boys and girls can get educated, creating a more secure and stable society based on values that are um, the part of and part of the fabric of the community is what creates more stable communities. You know, that is what um, gives people an option, gives people hope. Um, People aren't looking for other ways to earn money or ways um, to uproot the current system because they're pretty happy with it because they're being fed, they have means, they are getting educated, they're moving their country forward. Uh, And you see that over and over again. And so I think that it's about 
Who are your allies in creating a more secure society in which everyone has a stake and a say? And I do think that that ties into entrepreneurship and uh, entrepreneurship in terms of jobs that create hope. We spoke with Steve Kilalea, who had just released the most recent findings from the Global Peace Index. And those were some of the indicators that you mentioned. I mean, so we see less violence, we see less violent crime, we see um, people wanting to build civil society and communities. Yes, I I think it's about building um, communities in which people have a stake and a say and something to lose. I worked on a a New York Times story about the multiplier effect of women entrepreneurs. And I interviewed this couple from Logar province in Afghanistan, which is pretty insecure. Uh, And the man had gone into business, the husband had gone into business because customers would come into his wife's shop and say, boy, I would really love some jewelry to go with the dresses that your wife is making, selling. And so he being uh, inspired by their um, market need, went to Jalalabad, found a jeweler to make jewelry, and brought it back to his wife's store, and now is um, exporting jewelry actually to Boston, and told me that it was really because of his wife that he had become an entrepreneur, and that he had her to thank for his success. And he was telling me that, you know, everybody in their family now wants to be like them. Because they see that, you know, when more money is coming in, things get easier and boys and girls can go to school and families can live better. And that is um, something that I think is, is much more powerful, these homegrown moral models that, than anything uh, I, else I've seen in terms of making change and giving people a stake. Gail, what's the international community's responsibility to, to stabilize countries in terms of their economic development? What do they need to be doing? I think, first of all, the international community needs to listen and watch to what's already going on. So often you see people come in and they, they sort of import their best ideas instead of seeing, you know, what's already happening on the ground. You know, I mean, think about how much entrepreneurial drive is already on the ground in tough parts of the world. Um, and so question I always have is how do you tap into that? And how do you exploit that in the best possible sense of the word? How do you give people skills that they need? How do you help them access markets that would be interested in getting to their products? Because I think one of the biggest things, and I've written about this, um, you know, at length, is that, you know, you can't do trainings for training's sake. You know, it cannot be um, more beneficial to the internationals coming in and delivering the training than it is to the people on the ground who uh, need jobs and income after the training, right? And and I think that that is a real weakness, and and it has to be addressed. Because one thing you see often is that people come for training of whatever sort, I don't know, sewing or agriculture, and then nothing happens afterward. And so they're even more hopeless because, you know, there was this bit of spirit of optimism that, you know, there would be a market, there would be some business, there would be a chance to earn more money, which in a desperately poor country really matters. And so to have bring people in and then at the end realize there's nothing, uh, nothing has changed, just it can't be allowed to continue. So I think that people really need to think about the market linkage at the very beginning of the training when they go in and look at what's happening on the ground and not the end. Gail, what can our listeners learn? And what can they do to get more involved in helping women entrepreneurs in war-torn countries? Well, you know, I, I, my 
website at galamon.com. I have a list of, of organizations that people can reach out to. It's also uh, in the back of the book on the, on the dressmaker of Karkana if people are interested in getting involved. Um, some organizations work with women entrepreneurs. Um, some organizations work with women who are victims of domestic violence. Um, some work with getting women education so and literacy training. Uh, so people can really take it on and look uh, themselves and see what might be the most interesting for them to get involved with. Um, you know, and in the dressmaker's message, I really think, was to remind people um, that there's unsung heroines all around us, and especially in very tough parts of the world, and that there are women um, who, like these young women in Afghanistan under the Taliban years, took incredible obstacles and found opportunity. And I think if people really want to get involved on, on Afghanistan in particular, you know, reach out to your local officials, to your members of Congress, to your senators, and say that it matters that women have a seat at the table. Because I think in Afghanistan in particular, there is a sense in Washington that Americans just want out of this war. They don't really care how, and they don't really care when, as long as it's soon. Uh, and then you know, that means that people aren't really wrestling with all of these issues. Um, and if people show that they care, I do think they can really have an impact. Yeah, what about women entrepreneurs in the United States? Now, the United States ranked in the 80s in the Peace Index. Again, I'm not saying that women entrepreneurs can turn around uh, the entire United States peace ranking, but what role do women play here? in our country? I think women play a role both um, domestically and also internationally. I think, first of all, they are doing the same thing that they do everywhere around the world, which is starting businesses for the sake of their families and, um, you know, to make sure that their own futures and their families' futures are brighter. And I think that is universal. You know, one of the things that has moved me personally so much, um, when the dressmaker became a bestseller was be I couldn't figure out who was it that was really speak this was speaking to and then I started getting all these notes from women entrepreneurs in the US that said to me you know this book showed me that if these young women could overcome the obstacles they face then the dispiriting ones that I face every day can't be that bad and that meant so much to me because I think so often women underestimate the power to create change that they possess. You know, they're so beaten up by the day and by the obstacles and by the barriers that they forget that they are really agents of change who have an enormous power to make a difference. And I think it really does make a difference because when women are at the table and involved economically in this country, then they get a say in making sure that women are at the table and involved economically in other countries. Because otherwise, women get left out and they get forgotten. And when women are there at the table saying other women should be heard, that makes a difference. Gail Samak Laman, who wrote The Dressmaker of Karkana. Laman is also the deputy director of the Women and Foreign Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Earlier in this program, we heard about the Institute of Economics and Peace and the Global Peace Index from Steve Kilalea and Clyde McConaughey. You can find links to more information about this topic of the economics of peace and hear our complete interviews with all of the guests on this program at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003. 
order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast and our newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.